from Janice Henderson Investors. This is Research in Action, a podcast series that gives investors a behind-the-scenes look at the research and analysis used to shape our understanding of markets and inform investment decisions. CPU, GPU, DRAM, and NAND. You guessed it. Today, we're talking about semiconductors. Research analyst Sean Bakke covers this dynamic high-tech industry and joins the show to discuss what, this year, has become an increasingly difficult market to make sense of. On the one hand, the global economy going digital, semis long-term growth prospects appear stronger than ever. On the other hand, in the post-pandemic period, demand for chips is pulling back sharply, leading some companies to scale back investment in future growth. I'd say that, yes, there is some near-term volatility potentially ahead, but I I think over the long run, semiconductors continue to offer very compelling sort of multi-year opportunities relative to the broader market. I'm Carolyn Bigda. And I'm Matt Perrone, Director of Research. That's today on Research in Action. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Forecasts for global chip sales in both 2022 and 2023 are being revised lower, even though demand for computing power is projected to rise dramatically over the next decade. What's going on, Sean? You're absolutely correct. I think the overall trend towards digitization and rising computer requirements is only intensifying. So if you look out over the next 10 years, the, the sheer amount of data that we consume is only going to increase exponentially. So that's really being driven by these big secular drivers. We're talking like cloud computing, AI, 5G, factory automation, EVs, autonomous vehicles. So the list goes on, all your favorite buzzwords. But I think in the near to medium term, yes, we are seeing a few dynamics that are bubbling up under the surface. So I think first and foremost, the industry is coming off a very large pull forward of digital demand as, as we shifted from, you know, work from home, learn from home, play from home during the pandemic. So this turned out to be a real boom for everything from PCs to tablets to TVs to Wi-Fi routers. And in many cases, like myself, I went out and bought all four while I was stuck at home. So now we're starting to digest some of those pull forward effects and really seeing kind of a pronounced shift in consumer spending patterns for, from goods to services like travel. And then secondly, and probably more importantly, the world's really changed over the last six months. We've seen this confluence of macro factors come together. I mean, we're talking rising inflation, slowing economic growth in Europe, and lockdowns in China that have had a pretty profound negative impact on demand for semiconductors from both businesses and consumers. And then third, there's still this pesky issue of the semiconductor shortage. As anyone who's tried to buy a car in the last year can attest, this is still a huge problem with lengthy wait times. So... While chip supply, yes, has broadly improved, there's still pockets of areas like microcontrollers, programmable logic, analog, and power, where lead times still exceed 52 weeks or longer. Okay, so it sounds like there's a little bit of a pandemic hangover, there's macroeconomic issues and supply chain issues, so lots of different cross currents. Maybe let's talk a little bit about where we're seeing that oversupply and which semi-suppliers are most impacted by the oversupply at the moment. It's really interesting. We've seen this bifurcation of end demand between sort of these enterprise slash business-to-business end markets like cloud, automotive, industrial, and telecom, which has frankly been very resilient 
year to date. And then there's the consumer end markets where things have deteriorated and fallen a little bit faster. So I guess peeling back the onion a little bit, we've probably seen the fastest and frankly, the most pronounced impact in PCs and smartphones, which collectively, that's roughly half of the overall semiconductor market. Mm -hmm. So Starting right around June, we saw demand for PCs and smartphones fall off a cliff where you had this perfect storm of, number one, rising fuel prices, lockdowns in China, and the fallout in Europe from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And on top of that, as I mentioned earlier, you're coming off of one to two years of above-trend growth in PCs. I think stepping back pre-tandemic, you were looking at around 260 to 270 million PC ships per year on average. As the world pivoted to remote work and e-learning, that number spiked to 300 million in 2020 and 350 million in 2021. So naturally, some digestion is taking place now Mm. as well. And, you know, on the smartphone side, we're seeing similar impacts. So a lot of folks went out and spent stimulus checks on upgrading to 5G smartphones over the last couple of years. So that's leaving us with a little bit of a hole this year as well. So kind of a long-winded way of saying that almost overnight, we went from a world where the PC supply chain and China smartphone makers were stockpiling components in anticipation of another year of robust growth to frankly being left with a glut of both finished goods and component inventories. So basically, we went from a supply shortage to supply glut in just a matter of months. And To be honest, it's probably going to take until early to middle of 2023 before the supply chain can work down, you know, all that excess inventory of things like CPUs, memory, storage, etc. So that's what's going on the negative side. So enough doom and gloom. You're probably going to ask me next. So what about the rest of the semi-industry? What about the other half of the market? And I think over here, things have been remarkably resilient. The secular digital tailwinds I talked about earlier have really overcome those cyclical macro headwinds. I talked about cloud, auto, industrial, and telecom. So Let me flesh through each of those individually because they each have their own attributes. Starting on cloud, what we've seen is this continued shift from on-premise data centers to cloud, as well as record investments in AI. So that's driving kind of massive growth in cloud capex from the big US4 hyperscalers. Very strong demand for things like server, storage, networking that consume a ton of semis. And that's even with inflation pressures, prices going up, demand for that is still robust. Yeah, if you think about, if you're facing some uncertainty as a business, that's only going to accelerate your pivot to, to the cloud versus investing in your own IT infrastructure in-house. Mm-hmm. So definitely we see that continuing. Secondly, automotive, right? So production hasn't been great this year. So the industry continues to grapple with the chip shortage. But underneath the surface, we've actually seen a couple of interesting dynamics with respect to semiconductor content per vehicle. First, this sort of scarcity of chips has driven car makers to, to pivot their production to the highest end. So these are models that consume a ton of semis. And then secondly, rising fuel prices have really accelerated the shift to EVs, where on average, these EVs consume roughly 2 to 3x the content of an internal combustion engine vehicle. You'll air on some pretty attractive EV subsidies and through the Inflation Reduction Act. That's a trend we don't see slowing down anytime soon. Industrial, again, this, is, this area is a little more fragment. What we're seeing is digitization in areas like factory automation and robotics, which are frankly deflationary when the rest of the world is dealing with huge labor shortages and wage inflation. And then fourth and finally is telecom. We've seen global telecom providers really in a rush to build out these 5G networks and deploy all that spectrum they've put in place in the last couple of years. So a nice tailwind for semis to process, move and store all that 5G data that's coming down the pipe. All right, Sean. So thanks for that deep dive. Maybe we can back up and talk about the cycle, near-term cycle, and then the super cycle, if I'm allowed to use that word. The inventory cycle that you said is unfolding. We have to work through that. But then you talked about the intensity of semiconductor usage in things like EVs, the content per vehicles. Those are massive changes 
So there's a case to be made for a super cycle, a boom, if you will, on the other side. And then layer on top of that, the idea to onshore that, the recent CHIPS Act. Can you put this all in context for us, near-term and long-term? Sure. So let's start with the CHIPS Act, because I think that's been front and center in the media and certainly garnered the most attention. I think for the listeners that might have missed it, so back in July, Congress passed the U.S. CHIPS Act, which is it's a nice step towards bringing semiconductor manufacturing back home. The majority of manufacturing is done in Asia right now. And what's interesting is this CHIPS Act includes roughly $52 billion of subsidies for the semiconductor manufacturing here in the U.S., an additional $24 billion in tax credit for semifabs built here. And I think the EU has put something similar in place for around $43 billion. Euros. But, but the end goal is the same, to build out this sort of local supply chain and reduce geopolitical uncertainty associated with Asia. We've already seen a number of big projects getting announced in Arizona, Texas, and Ohio, as well as in Germany. Several of these actually have actually broken ground, and if you go through Phoenix, you can start to see the shells up there. So these guys will be ready to start taking equipment late next year. But again, to your point, these are very strategic multi-year investments that are going to happen irrespective of demand conditions over the next six to 12 months. And I think more importantly, I think because equipment lead times really long, in some cases, more than 12 months to get a tool delivered to you. So we're seeing what really strong in investment in, in, in advanced process notes. I think you're five nanometer and below. You know, if you're a leading edge founder, you can't afford to put your manufacturing roadmap on hold just because of some short-term gyrations in demand. Now, to your original question, yes, there is excess inventory in some parts of the market, right? Namely in memory. And here we've seen, you know, a, a pretty substantial glut. And the only way for these memory makers to get supply back in line with demand is to slash CapEx. So, you know, we've already heard from a handful of players that are saying they're planning on doing just that. And hopefully that helps the industry get into a better place in a few quarters, but that will take some time to work through. And then elsewhere, I alluded to the consumer weakness, but we're hearing of some tier two foundries in Asia that, you know, are exposed to consumer semis. And naturally they're going to be pulling back on CapEx a little bit. So, Bottom line, yes, there are commodity parts of the market where capacity investment is slowing naturally, given demand slowdown and rising inventory. But at the same time, these big strategic investments around leading edge process technology and reshoring of semi-manufacturing, I think that's going to continue no matter what. And that should drive a base level of CapEx for the industry for a number of years moving forward. At the same time, though, I think there is an issue with some regulations that are coming out in terms of licensing requirements for shipping products or manufacturing overseas. And can you talk a little bit about that? And does that put a lot of pressure on semi-manufacturers right now? Stepping back, so concomitant with this focus on U.S. manufacturing, we've also seen definitely a more hawkish stance from the government in terms of restricting China's access to things like advanced AI chips, leading edge manufacturing equipment, and even electronic design automation software or EDA software that could potentially be used in military applications. So to date, this has been a slow drip. I mean, it started a few months ago with restrictions on shipping tools capable of producing chips at 14 nanometer and below. And then we saw increased restrictions on EDA software for next-gen gate all-around transistors. And then most recently, probably the most publicized was this latest round of restrictions on shipping advanced GPUs or AI chips that can be used for military purposes. I guess stepping back, the financial impact here ranges from de minimis in the case of EDA today to less than 1% for the equipment suppliers and to roughly $400 million for the GPU market per quarter. So the fallout's been relatively manageable. I think the bigger concern is really around what's next. And that sort of got the market spooked a little bit. And you know, frankly, it adds another layer of uncertainty at a time where really it's unwelcome, given we're already on pins and needles with respect to the economy. 
So there's concern that there could be even more regulation coming down. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the market and the market impact because there has been, as we talked about, a lot of weakness in semiconductor stocks in recent months. And so how is the market digesting all of these different facets right now? And how do we think about this in the long-term context of investing in the semiconductor opportunity that seems to still be there with all this new technology? Yeah. So again, we've already seen certain parts of the semiconductor industry where demand has deteriorated significantly, and it will take multiple quarters to recover, right? But I think if we do enter into a deeper recession, there's certainly no end market that's going to be immune. You know, could semiconductor units and revenues take a breather next year and be down? Absolutely. So we've been through cycles before, and we've seen this before. I think more importantly, if you step back and just look at this long-term trend line, it continues to be on this positive trajectory. In the past, the industry has grown, let's call it mid-single digits on average, so nicely above GDP, right? And then now just given the sheer amount of data being generated and broader digitization, coupled with more stable pricing, you're potentially looking at an industry that could grow high single digits over the long run versus kind of mid-single digits in the past. Again, that's more than 2x global GDP. So you're looking at better growth, better margins, and higher free cash flow than the broader market, all at a lower multiple than the S&P 500. So yeah, I'd say that, yes, there is some near-term volatility potentially ahead, but I think over the long run, semiconductors continue to offer very compelling sort of multi-year opportunities relative to the broader market. You mentioned multiples, and that was going to be my next question, which is about valuation. And do the stocks now have valuations that are uniquely attractive for the industry? Sure. So valuation is a little more nuanced. We know the market discounts uncertainty more than bad news. And I think we're kind of seeing that play out in real time. We've heard some call this the most anticipated downturn in the history of semis. I mean, the Sox year to date is down more than 40% from the peak and, you know, multiples have compressed around 35%. This makes it the most severe correction since the global financial crisis and half the end market has not even been impacted Hmm. thus far. You know, from where we sit today, the SOX index or the semi-index trades at roughly 14 times next year's earnings, which is nicely below the historical average of 16 and down significantly from the peak of 21 last November, but still about 15% above the trough, which incidentally we did test back in June. So yes, valuations reflect a lot of uncertainty like you described. I think what's more interesting within semis, we do see a number of high quality franchises that are trading at or near five-year trough multiples. So We're trying to identify these businesses where the market has really overshot fundamentals to the downside, which creates this asymmetric risk-reward profile if you have a little bit of duration on the other side. Long answer short, yes, we are acutely aware of all the near to medium-term risk you referenced earlier around supply, demand, macro, trade. And, you know, to be honest, trying to call a hard bottom is, is difficult. But I think the one thing the team here has learned from investing in this space for more than a decade that... Anytime valuations get as extreme as we as they were back in June, they can snap back just as quickly on the other side of the cycle. So we need to be mindful of that and not get too one-sided, right? And try to identify those one-offs where there is asymmetric risk return. We're starting to see that a little bit. Why has this pullback been so severe or as severe as the global financial crisis? And what happened? Was there Did the stocks overshoot so much the upside coming into this correction? Yeah, I think to your point, part of it is market driven, right? So market multiples were certainly elevated. So we're starting from a higher place. And then you start talking about all the other things we talk about. Was there a certain amount of pull forward from the pandemic? Certainly. So I think the the market is still trying to grapple with what is the steady state growth of this market, number one. And number two, um, 
you know, how long is the inventory correction going to last on the other side of the cycle? And then you layer on trade as well. So just generally speaking, a lot of uncertainty with respect to macro, the trade, and this fact that we started from a higher base. I think that we're definitely seeing the other side of that right now. Mm -hmm. Matt, I'm going to let you take the next question because we always talk about innovation on this show. And I wanted to hear what you might be wondering about in terms of like where the next big breakthrough is going to come with semiconductors or the next innovation. What are you curious about these days? Sure. No, I think there's a really big story here that we should talk about. I mentioned the word supercycle earlier on, which semiconductor analysts are not allowed to say. (laughs) Uh, Why is that? Because they've gotten into trouble saying that before. So I'll say it for them. But I really think this story of, and Sean can walk us through the exciting innovations happening here, but this is really a locomotive that I don't know that everyone appreciates when they can see the amount of innovation in the sector. When I look across all the sectors, it's got to be one of the most innovative sector and we've had a number of really great ones on this show. So I guess, Sean, the question for you, maybe you can walk through some of the innovations you're excited about that could carry this, dare I say, super cycle for the next decade. Yeah, so I'm not going to use the word super cycle again, <laughs> to your point. But generally speaking, we continue to see significant long-term, I'll say secular megatrends in areas like artificial intelligence, vehicle electrification, and Internet of Things. So those are the three themes focused on. And then we're also really excited about semi-cap equipment, which is slightly different from the other three. So I guess first on AI, you know, I think what we're seeing is use cases going far and beyond just identifying pictures of dogs and cats on the internet. So we really see AI at this tipping point where we have vertical industries really start to realize the economic benefit that AI brings and monetize that into real cost savings. In other words, companies using AI and semiconductors play offense rather than you know, in the past where compute was back office cost center, you throw a server rack in, in your office and forget about it. So I think what you're seeing now is this strong adoption of AI by vertical industries. So whether it's applications like genomics or drug discovery and healthcare, seismic exploration, oil and gas, fraud detection in banks and pricing algorithms and retail, these monetizable use cases continue to grow for AI, right? And I think what's even more interesting is that the number of parameters that trade in these models is growing exponentially faster than compute. So think about it this way. The, the number of parameters in the model is growing roughly three to four X every two months, okay? The compute performance of these chips is only growing 10 X every two years. So that gap between these large language parameter models versus compute powers is only widening. What does that mean? That means you need more chips, more GPUs, more CPUs and custom ASICs to train these massive transformer models. So. We're really positive on AI. We think we're still early innings there. We see a long runway of growth ahead as we start to unlock the benefits there. Vehicle electrification. We know the shift to EVs is happening now. The train has sort of left the station here. And with EVs, you really see a big inflection in the semi-content on the order of 2 to 3x that of an internal combustion engine vehicle. You have new applications here like onboard charging, the main traction inverter for your wheels and your motors battery management systems and domain controls, right? And then you layer on these increasing government incentives. For example, the most recent Inflation Reduction Act gives you about 10K per vehicle in incentives. So you put all that together, we think that EV penetration can hit mid-teens percentage of vehicle production by the middle of the decade and potentially 30% by the end of the decade. So a huge windfall for these automotive suppliers that do things like power semis, and things of that nature. And then you layer on these additional content gains with level two plus and level three autonomous vehicle function. And that's another multiplier effect for things like processors, image sensors, LIDARs, radars. So 
really strong growth for automotive semis for the next 10 years. And then on industrial, right? So whether or not you want to call it IoT, Smart Factory, Industry 4.0, a lot of cool buzzwords here, but really what's going on in industrial, there's a lot of tailwinds in factory automation, you know, robotics and edge computing, which really feed into that sweet spot for analog and embedded semiconductors. Historically, not that exciting with a space, but now when you think about all that sensor data that's collected on a factory floor that needs to be processed and secured in real time, I think a very compelling investment case there as well. I think we've seen third-party data show that the number of connected endpoints is going to grow to 50 billion by 2025 versus roughly 20 billion today. And then you layer in labor shortages, wage inflation, and reshoring of manufacturing. We think that just accelerates the demand for industrial semis over the long term. So there's AI, there's vehicle electrification and industrial, but I, I want to make sure we don't forget about semi-cap equipment because that sort of ties together those three other themes. And semi-cap equipment, just to interrupt briefly, what is that? Right. So th- these are essentially the picks and shovels for the semiconductor industry, right? So these are the tools that are used to manufacture a chip. Mm. And basically that you can't have cloud, you can't have AI, you can't have 5G without these tools. You just can't. And what's great about this industry, it's basically an oligopoly structure where five companies own, let's call it 75% share of the market. And each of these businesses has its own swim lane with really high barriers to entry. And the basic premise here is, look, manufacturing chip is getting tougher, Chips are getting bigger, they're getting more complex. So this old playbook of just simply doubling the number of transistors every two years via Moore's law is getting more and more difficult. It's not as simple as it used to be. You need more steps to build a chip. That means more tools, longer lead times, or longer cycle times, excuse me, and more clean room space. So it's getting tougher and you also need new innovation. We've seen things like extreme ultraviolet lithography, which I could spend all day talking about. I don't want to bore you guys. <laughs> 3D NAND, advanced packaging, gate all around transistors. I mean, you name it. All these things sort of drive you know another layer of inflection on top of that base spend. And then you layer on this emerging growth factor from reutilization of, of semi-manufacturing and all these massive fabs that are coming up in Arizona, Ohio, Texas, and Europe. So long story short, we've seen this big step up in capital intensity historically has been around, let's call it 10 to 11% of semiconductor industry revenues to about 15% today. Mm. So big numbers. Um, So yes, we could see some near-term noise around CapEx cuts and the China restrictions you talked about earlier, but I think overall demand for equipment continues to be up and to the right. And to be honest, these are great businesses and super critical to the digital economy. So a lot to like here over the long run. And if I could give a little plug for the team, people tend to focus on semiconductors and all the GPUs and all the things that Sean talked about. But the team has really been on this trend of no matter what happens, you need innovation in semi-cap equipment. It's the key fulcrum of the whole industry. Mm -hmm. And our team has identified that early on and really it's been a big part of our investment ecosystem, so to speak. Semi-cap equipment gets lost because it's very technical it's in the weeds. It's not front and center, but it's so important to the industry. As Sean noted, without the innovation there, you know, you can't get down to these process nodes. You can't get the gate all arounds. You can't get the improved productivity that we all depend on. Right. So it sounds like it's the important foundation of the industry. Exactly right. Which sounds like it's experiencing increased demand, not just for compute powder, but also volume. And so I'm just wondering, does this increasing demand coming from all different sides, does that help potentially mitigate the cyclicality of this industry, which tends to go through ups and downs historically? 
Yeah, so um, coming back to Matt's earlier comment about the super cycle. Um, <laughs> I don't have to use that. Any, anytime, anytime you hear someone say that semiconductor uh, industry is no longer cyclic, I think it's always important to step back and think, right? So I think generally speaking, yes, uh, semiconductors will always be cyclical, just given the sort of inherent supply demand slash macro component of it. I, but I think that to your point, because of all the drivers you mentioned, I think the amplitudes of the cycles are going to continue to dampen going forward. Think higher highs and higher lows. So why is that? There's a number of reasons here. You know, long story short, you've got a space that's significantly consolidated. So fewer players that are much more rational in terms of their investments. And you've got end markets that are significantly more diversified. So in the past, I'm going back like 20 plus years, you'd have dozens of companies chasing demand. They'd all build up a ton of capacity at the same time. And then, you know, when the cycle did roll over, you'd take a massive gross margin hit and EPS it from, number one, factory under absorption, because you'd have all this capacity needs to be absorbed. And then you'd also have price declines because you'd had too much supply in the market. So I think what you see now is this pivot to fabulous less fab light manufacturing. And that really finishes the impact of a downturn on the other side, because it's not the semi companies taking the supply risk. And then moreover, in the past 20 years, you'd get this massive PC cycle followed by a downturn on the other side. PCs were the biggest driver of semi-consumption in the past. Well, now it's below 20% uh, of the overall semiconductor market. And at the same time, you've got much more diversified demand drivers. Right. It's not just the smartphones and the PCs right. anymore. It's right. now much more diversified. Absolutely. Okay. So much less sort of boom bust now that you don't have to worry about timing that PC cycle every couple of years. I think bottom line, yes, semis are cyclical and they will continue to be cyclical. But at the end of the day, you've got a group that has higher revenue growth, better margins, and superior cash generation and capital allocation versus the broader market. But all that comes at a discount to the S&P 500. I just want to clarify one thing you said about fabless or fab light. So what does that mean? Because it sounded like it was important in terms Absolutely. of the so, way the industry operates Absolutely. Today. So, um, you know, in the past, majority of companies that they did manufacture their own chips, they were vertically integrated. But what we've seen over the last 20 years, we've talked about rising capital intensity. So the follow to that is that very few companies can actually afford to stay on the Moore's Law curve and manufacture their own chips. So they're increasingly turning to the third-party foundries to, to do their manufacturing. So they're taking less risk in-house with respect to supply, working capital, and capacity and relying on the foundries. So what that does is they can focus on doing what they do best, designing chips rather than manufacturing them. So they're not taking the supply risk on the other side. So definitely seen more rational investment in the industry, which has helped dampen that cyclicality. Sean, you did touch on it. Maybe it is important to bring out the capital allocation discipline, the cycle awareness that management's really are laser focused on now that is also a little bit different. They're just, it seems to me, they're much more adept at managing the cycle. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for example, I'll use DRAM, probably the most cyclical part of the semiconductor industry. There used to be 10 plus suppliers of DRAM. Today we have three and they all know what they're doing and they all understand that when times are tough and there's oversupply, we need to pair back in CapEx, right? In the past, when it was sort of a prisoner's dilemma, who's going who's gonna to pull back on CapEx first? One guy would pull back and the other guy would go pedal to the metal and use that time to gain a share. So I think we're seeing much more rational investment in the space. And that's really helped, number one, just dampen the cyclicality. And number two is that because these guys are generating such outsized cash, we are seeing a number of these companies return 100% of it via dividends and buybacks. And that's very compelling, right? So it sounds like the industry is maturing, getting a little bit more rational, and yet it still has a long runway of growth ahead of it, which sounds like a pretty good combination to me. 
Absolutely. Yes, we could see some volatility in the next three to six months. I think that the group offers definitely some very compelling long-term risk reward potential for those of us for, with duration and ability to withstand some near-term volatility. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. We've really appreciated your insights. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I think on our next episode, Matt, we have Caroline Escobar joining us. She's a research analyst here who covers apparel and retail. And she's going to be talking about all of this just before the holidays, which I think will be great timing. Yeah, that'll be fun. And by the way, to connect it to today's conversation, she'll also cover wearable watches and things like that. So more and more semiconductors all over the place. Put it on the holiday shopping list, (laughs) I think. (laughs) I'm Carolyn Vigda. I'm Matt Perone. This has been Research in Action. The views presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janus Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Technology industries can be significantly affected by obsolescence of existing technology, short product cycles, falling prices and profits, competition from new market entrants, and general economic conditions. A concentrated investment in a single industry could be more volatile than the performance of less concentrated investments and the market as a whole. SOX, PHLX Semiconductor Sector Index, is a Philadelphia Stock Exchange capitalization weighted index composed of the 30 largest U.S. companies primarily involved in the design, distribution, manufacture, and sale of semiconductors. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Henderson Management SA, registration number B22848 at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janus Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janus Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janus Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, company registration number 1997007082N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E, Hong Kong by Janus Henderson Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. Taiwan ROC by Janus Henderson Investors Taiwan Limited, independently operated, Suite 45A1, Taipei 101 Tower, Number 7, Section 5, Sinyi Road, Taipei, 110. Telephone 1-800-227-5111.
02811011001. Approved size license number 023, issued in 2018 by Financial Supervisory Commission. G. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore. Limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its subregulations. H. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan. Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instruments business. I. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 47, 124, 279, 518 and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16, 165, 119, 531, AFSL 4, 4, 4, 2, 6, 6, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43, 164, 177, 244, AFSL 4, 4, 4, 2, 6, 8. J. The Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing Communication. Janice Henderson, Knowledge Labs, and Knowledge Shared, are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C0922-45533-093024.